Um, open your Bibles, if you would, uh, to Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 14. It says, Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther from there, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat, mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants, and went after him. We have a echo. We have something going on. Okay, keep talking. All right. Pretend. Okay. Well, we're at church, so it's a good pretend time, isn't it? Let's all let's all pretend. All right. Let's pretend. As I said a couple weeks ago, Jesus came as a teacher. He came as a example, and he came as a minister or a servant. And as a teacher, he called, he, ex- he explained to people the gospel of the kingdom of God. And he called us to repent and to believe the gospel. But as an example, he invited us to come and to follow him, to fellowship with him, to share in his life and his ministry. And a couple of weeks ago, we looked at Jesus as a preacher and the, the importance and priority of his message. And today I want to talk about Jesus as an example, or should I say, the uh, call to discipleship that Jesus issues here in Mark chapter 1. First, let's look at um, the invitation. Jesus taught by both word and deed. Thus, he invited men and women to live with him, share his life, and share his ministry together. In a word... To follow him. To Jesus, to follow him meant to be a disciple. In the New Testament, the word disciple occurs 261 times. That's a lot. And it means to be a learner, a pupil, a student, or as we translate it, a disciple. And in scripture, it is the characteristic word for those who followed Jesus Christ. We say today, are you a Christian? And they would say, are you a disciple? And the difference is actually very important, as we will see. So first, let's, let's define what, what a disciple is, and then we will look at the disciples' response to Jesus' invitation. <clears throat> so when we talk about being a disciple of Jesus, what do we mean? Well, we mean several things. First of all, we mean that a disciple is a learner, a learner. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight and 29, he said he invited all to come unto him and to learn of him, or some versions might say to learn from him. One author said the Greek pupils and rabbinical students bound themselves personally to their master and looked for objective teaching with the ultimate aim of themselves becoming a master or rabbi. When the first disciples were 
invited to follow Jesus, they were invited to literally dwell with Him. In John, we have a record of this call, and the disciples said, Hey, Jesus, where, where, where do you live? And Jesus' response was, Come and see. Just come and see. Follow me. Be with me. So they were able to sit at Jesus' feet, literally. And Jesus would teach them. He taught, he taught them when he was preaching to the multitudes, but then he taught them privately, as we know. Well, we don't have the opportunity to sit at Jesus' feet in a literal sense. Jesus isn't here physically. But thank the Lord, Jesus is here spiritually. Because he has given us his spirit, whom he calls another counselor, another teacher, that dwells in the hearts of his people and dwells in the midst of his church. And thus, he teaches us also. So we are students of Jesus. But in order for us to be taught by Jesus, we have to be in his word because this is the means that he has given us, that he has left us so that he can instruct us through his spirit. They had Jesus literally speaking. We have Jesus speaking to us through his word and through his Holy Spirit. So we must do what? We must study his scripture and we must meditate in his word and ask Jesus to teach us his word. And if we ask that sincerely, he will do so. The idea of an ignorant disciple is really an oxymoron. That's a contradiction in terms. Because a disciple, by, by its very definition, is someone who is a student of the Word and a student of Jesus Christ. Secondly, a disciple is an imitator. Jesus said to his disciples, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. To follow thus means to imitate him, that is to pattern our life on the life of Jesus Christ. So first, we must learn what Jesus was like. We must learn what Jesus taught, what Jesus thought. And then we are to imitate and to live like Jesus Christ. That means we believe what he believed, we teach what he taught, we live as he, he lived, and we minister as he ministered. Um, Jesus said some very unpopular things. And, I, and, and this is why Jesus... Um, in several places, said to those who were following him, if you are ashamed of me in your generation, then I will be ashamed of you when I come in my glory. Why would anybody be ashamed of Jesus? Well, because Jesus said things that were unpopular. And so there's always the temptation for us to refashion Jesus to make him popular. And of course, different cultures have different values, so there's a lot of different ways to refashion Jesus. And so, um, we are tempted, I believe, today in our culture to make Jesus nicer than he really is. And what I mean by that is, uh, if Jesus was anything, he was clearly God in the flesh. And being thus God in the flesh, Jesus Christ was love incarnate. Now, the problem is, when we say Jesus was love incarnate, we, are, we make assumptions about love. Right? 
So what do we mean by love when we say love was incarnate? So do we mean Jesus was always nice? Do we mean Jesus never offended anybody? Do we, do we, do we mean Jesus never made anybody uncomfortable? I mean, what do we mean by love when we say he was love incarnate? You see, we are tempted to impose our cultural values into the gospel and and make Jesus more palatable to the flesh than he really is. Now, I, I, you know, you'll, you'll hear Christians say things like, you know, just love people and you're just going to love them into the kingdom. Like, love wins, love wins all. Love will win out. If anybody loved, it was Jesus. Am I right? I mean, if he was God in the flesh, if he was sinless and perfect, then he was always walking in love. And so how did people respond? Well, some people believed in him and the others killed him. I mean, that's the truth. Love isn't, love isn't the solution. Love doesn't fix things by itself. You can love someone who doesn't love you back. You can love someone who will use you and abuse you, even while you're loving them. Such is fallen human nature. The, things that cha- the thing that changes people isn't love by itself. It's the Holy Spirit of God showing people what true love is. And bringing them to a place of repentance. When we are called to imitate Jesus, that means we are to pattern our lives after him. And that means that we have to embrace the things that he taught. And we have to speak what he spoke. Even if those things are unpopular. And they are getting increasingly unpopular in our culture. Now, you know, Christians are being persecuted all around the world. All around the world. And they are being... Read the headlines. Every day we read about Christians being killed in the Middle East. And I'm sure they're being killed in other places. And these are people who are preaching the gospel of love. And the response is one of hatred. Why? Because as Jesus said, light has come into the world, but men loved darkness more than light. They loved darkness. They didn't love love. Not true love, not biblical love. So, if we're going to be a disciple of Jesus, you know, one of the reasons we have to immerse ourselves in Scripture, and especially in the Gospels, is because we have to renew our minds so that we don't fall into the trap of refashioning Jesus after our own image. I read a book recently about Jesus called Jesus Through the Centuries. It was a fascinating study of how different cultures at different times would emphasize different things about Jesus. And really what the book shows, although this wasn't the intent, what the book showed was how we fall into this trap of making Jesus in our own image. The Jesus of the Gospels is more loving than we want him to be. More loving. So we are called to imitate him. First learn, and then we are called to imitate him. To strive to live as he lived. But thirdly, a disciple is someone who abides with the master. 
One author said that the word mathetes, or the word disciple, indicates discipleship as total attachment to someone. Not merely the idea of being a pupil. Total attachment is the key phrase. So if we're going to learn of Jesus and truly imitate Jesus, we must learn to abide with Jesus. That means we practice the fine art of personal fellowship with Christ. To abide means that we abide in communion with Him. Uh, John 15, you all know so well, but let's read it to remind ourselves. John 15, Jesus is talking to His disciples... And this is right before he departs, or should I say he's arrested and then killed. He says, I am the true vine, John 15, 1, and and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away or lifts up. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, And they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. But if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit. So you will be my disciples. Fruit bearing being a mark of discipleship. But fruit bearing being the result of what? Abiding. Of abiding. Verse 10, And if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do whatever I command you. So the practice of abiding in Jesus, of course, means private, what we today call private devotions, meditation, and prayer, as well as public devotions, worship, and instruction. In some, we might say that abiding means to walk in the Spirit, which is the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And learning to walk in communion with Jesus is uh, something we we learn to do, not just at stated times, but we learn to walk with Him throughout the day because He's given us another Consular that dwells in us. And so we can abide and commune throughout the day because we have the Spirit of God in us. Fourthly, a disciple is obedient. Just as we saw here in John 15, Jesus says, you are my friends, verse 14, if you do whatever I command you. Everything that we've said about discipleship suggests this idea of obedience. And surely, if we learn of Christ's will, but do not do it, 
then we're not living as a disciple. A disciple is not someone simply who learned abstract knowledge, but the goal of discipleship was through learning, through abiding, then the student would become like the teacher. That's the goal, to be like the teacher. To live as the teacher lived. As one author said, in the scripture, the goal of learning is action, which corresponds to God's word. Matthew chapter 7, if you'd like to turn there. This is one of those sayings of Jesus that uh, we we have a hard time reconciling with our notion of love. In Matthew 7, Jesus, this is at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And toward the end of the, the sermon, he, Jesus gives a series of cautions or warnings. And he says in, in verse 13 of chapter 7, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. But narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. You know, Jesus is like really kind of redundant here. But whenever he gets redundant, he's really trying to make a point, right? We keep on saying the tree is good even though the fruit's bad. But he's saying, no, bad fruit means bad tree. 19, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruit you will know them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. And many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name. In other words, we were very religious. Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So in sum, we see that if we're going to be a disciple of Jesus, we have to learn of him. And this learning is is a call to imitation. It's a call to communion. But it's also a call to obedience. And the last thing I want to say about this call to discipleship is that a disciple is someone who's also a fisherman. It's very striking to me that in in Mark, when Jesus issues this original call to the, the handful of disciples here, Simon, Andrew, James, and John, He says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Now, he could have said a lot of things. But that's the one thing that he mentioned. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And then, if you remember, at the end of Jesus' ministry, after his resurrection, when he gave what's called the Great Commission, he said, go and disciple the nations. So, at the very beginning of his call, at the very closing commission, he he reiterates the fact that one of the main purposes of the disciple is to reach others with the gospel. We got one amen. 
You know, it's very easy in light of all that we've said about discipleship to think of Christianity as a self-improvement program. That is, we're we're inclined to think of discipleship as being like Jesus morally. In other words, we think being like Jesus means being good. Okay? Well, there's a sense in which that is true. Jesus was good. But he was a whole lot more than good. It's true, but it's not enough. For as we've seen, being a disciple means imitating Jesus. Not just in his character, but also in his goal and in his passion. So why did Jesus come? Was it not to bring men and women to the Father? To draw men and women into the kingdom? In a word, was it not to be a fisher of men? Early in Mark, he says, when the, the, the crowds were pressing around him, he said to the disciples, we need to go to another city and I need to preach there because for this purpose I came. I came to declare the kingdom of God. I came to invite men to repent and to believe and enter into the kingdom. That's why I came. Yes, he came to die for our sins. But he came to preach the good news of the gospel. And as disciples, we are to imitate Jesus. How many of us have led anyone to Jesus Christ? How many of us have even tried? How many of us have shared the gospel with a co-worker or a family member? Oh, maybe you did it 20 years ago. I'm talking about last week. I'm talking about last month. You see, we have lost Jesus' vision. For the lost. Let me tell you what happens when you become a disciple of Jesus. Since being a disciple means you abide with him, what happens is as you spend time with Jesus, his heart gets into your heart. His heart gets into your heart. And what happens, and it's very uncomfortable, is you start caring about things that Jesus cares about. It's very uncomfortable. It's very unsettling. Because I know we all think we're good people by nature, but in fact we're not. And we're all pretty much fundamentally selfish. But when Jesus gets in your heart and you spend time with Jesus and he starts changing you, he starts to change you in such a way that you start to get your eyes off yourself. And you start looking around and you start looking at other people in a new way. And you start seeing people's needs and you actually start caring. And that's painful. And when you see lost people, instead of judging them, you realize that when Jesus, as Jesus looked at the multitude, he said, they're like sheep without a shepherd. And instead of looking at the lost people and condemning them and judging them, you start to have compassion on them. And that's painful. You know, the church in America has not grown in years. Studies have been done. The word's out. All the big mega churches that are popping up, they're just swallowing up smaller churches. The kingdom is not expanding in America. And I believe it's because we have a disease called affluenza. I believe we have been so shaped by our culture. We've bought into the lie of more is better, me first, my comfort, my success. And we even wrap a lot of it in Christian jargon. But how many of us can say that we care about the lost?
Do we care about men and women who may be perishing forever? No, I have a solution for that problem. Let's change the gospel and let's say people don't perish forever. And then I don't feel so bad. Then I, then, then I don't have to worry about my neighbor, my sibling, my parents, my children. But it's all the game, you see. Jesus invites us into the kingdom, but he invites us to come into the kingdom and be followers. Not just to be what we today call Christians. Now, I know that God rejoices every time a sinner repents. But I think we can equally equally say that God is grieved every time one of his saints refuses to follow. There is a richness, a depth, a quality of life that is available to every professing Christian if they will truly follow Jesus Christ. But as we'll learn later, as we as Jesus talks more about discipleship, it's not the life that we expect. It's not the life that we expect. When you follow, that means you are not leading. Right? When I led my life, I kind of made a mess of it. I don't know about you. We're not in charge. Jesus is the teacher, the rabbi, the Lord, and we're to follow him. So let's look very quickly as we close. In Mark 1, let's see what the first disciples did when they were called. Mark 1, 16. And as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. When he gone a little further, or farther, excuse me, from there, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. The first disciples' response to the invitation, the call to discipleship, really illustrates... What we talked about two weeks ago, when Jesus said to to men, repent and believe. This is an illustration of what repentance and believing really looks like. Because repenting means leaving. Whatever you're doing that isn't right, stop doing it. That's repentance. You stop doing what you're doing that you shouldn't be doing. It's not just feel sorry about it and keep on doing it. Feel bad about it and keep on doing it. But stop doing it. So it means turning one's direction. So the disciples were doing one thing. Jesus caused them. They stopped doing what they were doing, and they started doing something different. Well, they wouldn't have followed him if they didn't believe, right? So they left or repented, and they believed. They followed. But I want you to notice two things about their response. First of all, their response was immediate. Verse 16, as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew's brother casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Then immediately they left their nets and they followed him. They didn't postpone responding to Jesus' call. As we saw 
previously, when we talk about Jesus preaching, Jesus preaching had an urgency about it. Jesus said, now the kingdom of God is at hand. Today, now, now is the day to come into the kingdom. Because we have no guarantee on tomorrow. Amen? No guarantee on tomorrow. So we're invited to come into the kingdom. We're invited to be a disciple of Jesus. And that call is urgent. The call is now. And as we said previously, an indecision is a decision. And when we say, I'll think about it, we're saying no. Tozer has a wonderful chapter in this book, The Dangers of Shallow Faith. You should all get it, just for this chapter. It's called, this chapter is called, The Danger of Postponed Living. He says, remember, you've not done anything about truth until you've acted on it. You can say amen if it's Tozer, okay? (laughs) If it's a statement, it is to be believed. If it's a command, it is to be obeyed. If you've not believed or obeyed, you have done, you have not done anything and you have postponed your Christian life. Then he says, it permeates our lives. It follows us everywhere we go. That great beast says, not now, do this tomorrow. Tomorrow I will do it, and it shall be so. So the urgings of the Holy Spirit get postponed. They're not denied or rejected, but simply postponed for some more convenient time. Let me tell you something, friends. The call to discipleship, as we will learn later, is a call of taking up the cross. There is never a convenient time to take up the cross. As much as we think it will be easier later, the reality is it is not easier later because the call doesn't change. Jesus doesn't say, oh, well, Joe, oh, you're special, so we're going to give you a nice cushy cross. Joe gets the rubber cross. Oh, we'll give Bob the velvet cross. But we'll give so-and-so. No, we'll give him the hard wooden splintery cross. No, it's the same cross for all of us. And it's no easier tomorrow than it is today. It's no easier. In fact, it could be argued that it's actually harder tomorrow. You know why? This is really important. Listen. The more that we postpone the call the harder our hearts get. And the more we postpone the call, the less inclined we will be to respond to the call later. It's not like, oh yeah, okay. Uh, the more I think about it, the more I'm going to really be, I'm going to, yeah, someday I'm going to jump in and I'm going to be a, a, an all-in Christian for Jesus. I, I'll get, yeah, I'm going to do that. Yeah, uh-huh, I'll get there. Uh, when am I going to do that? When it's convenient? It's never convenient. Jesus said the way was narrow. The way to life was difficult. The call to discipleship is a call that is issued with urgency. It's a call that's issued to each one of us today. As a matter of fact, it's a call that's issued daily. You don't walk the aisle at a service or go to a summer camp and get on your face at an altar call or whatever happens or have a weekend retreat. And say, oh yeah, yeah, I'm a disciple because I did that two years ago. No. I'm a disciple if I'm following Jesus today. Today. Not yesterday. Today. Yeah, I could read this whole chapter. It's so good. So the, the disciples' response was immediate. 
And the second thing I want to point out before we close about their response is that their response was, how shall we say, comprehensive. That is, it says that they left their boats. They left their nets. They left their servants. They left their father. In other words, they left completely when they followed Jesus. Or as Luke summed it up in chapter 5, where he says, and they forsook all and followed him. When Jesus calls us to follow him, that call to abide with him, to learn of him, to commune with him, to imitate him, is a call to leave everything else behind which hinders that. And sometimes that means good things. I'm not just talking about bad things, the obvious things. Yeah, you know what? If you're going to be a disciple, you can't commit adultery. Okay, no-brainer. But I'm talking about the fact that if we're going to follow Jesus, we have to put Jesus where he belongs as the Lord in first place. And the call to discipleship means our willingness. Are you listening? Our willingness to surrender everything to that call. Our willingness to lose everything for that call. To lose your dreams and your hopes and your family and your friends and your comfort and all the things that you humanly want. Now, in a lot of cases, Jesus never really requires us to to let go of certain things. But we must be willing. We must be. For many people... The, the, the great obstacle is their possessions. They'll be wonderful Christians in every regard, but not in, not in that regard. They won't let go of their money. And thus, they're not truly walking as a disciple. For many others, the, the obstacle is friendships or relationships. I came to Jesus as a young adult, so I had the experience of having an old crowd and then getting saved and entering the church and having a new crowd. And it became apparent to me that if I was going to follow Jesus, the old crowd had to join the new crowd or I was going to leave the old crowd behind. You know, some friendships are toxic. Some relationships are unhealthy for you spiritually. And if a relationship does not further your disciple with, discipleship with Jesus Christ, then you're called to surrender that relationship. And it's hard. I've, I've, quote, lost friends. I've lost a woman early in my life that I loved and thought I would marry, but she would not take the cross up with me. And it was profoundly painful. But what Jesus does, because he's so good, as he says later in the gospel, no matter what you forsake, and I give back a hundredfold, Houses, friends. And then eternal life on top of it all. And sometimes when you're willing to forsake something, God in His grace gives it back to you later, resurrected. But now you can receive it as a gift. And not hold on to it as a right or a demand. You hearing me? Well, if only I could offer you an easy Christianity. But you know, Heart isn't bad. Ask any athlete. Heart isn't bad. Heart's good. You want the workout to hurt, right? We're just working out for glory. 
We're working out for glory. So we are called into the kingdom and we're called to follow Jesus. And as we conclude, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. And as I was thinking about the supper in light of this message, it dawned on me, you know, the last supper was the first supper, right? That, that Passover Jesus had, what we now call communion. Um, that was, a, that was a, a supper for his disciples. And that's, that's what this is. This is, a, this is a supper for his disciples. So I'm going to guess that the Holy Spirit convicted you today. Amen. Am I right? How could he not? Unless you're just a stone. I'm convicted. I preached it. Okay? I get to be convicted all week as I prepared. You only get to deal with it for 10 minutes. So, that's a good thing, though. It's a good thing. So maybe it's, it's you're not in the Word. Maybe it's your, you're not caring about the loss. Maybe it's the fact that you want to follow Jesus, but you're really holding on to old friendships you need to let go. I, I don't know what the Holy Spirit is, is saying to you, but I know He's talking to many of you. And this, this call is, uh, is something we need to hear repeatedly, I believe. So let's stand, and as we stand, let's bow our heads, and I'd like you to just take a moment and have a, have a moment with the Lord.